This is episode 13 of the Now Is podcast. My name is Ben Remsen, and the idea of this podcast is to do a recorded version of the concept you might know from Downbeat Magazine's Blindfold Test and The Wire Magazine's Invisible Jukebox. To play tunes for musicians without telling them what they're about to hear and see what they have to say. What follows is the conversation that I had with Paul G. Lorenzo in the late morning and early afternoon of July 31st, 2016 in my living room in the Rogers Park neighborhood of Chicago. Paul is a Chicago-based improviser and composer who plays a variety of keyboard instruments as well as synthesizer and electronics in many groups and ad hoc improvised contexts. He's also a co-founder of the music venue and art gallery Elastic Arts, where he's been involved in presenting creative music since 2001. You're currently hearing me talk over All Together Now from the 2012 self-titled album by the Paul G. Lorenzo Trio. At the end of this interview, you'll hear streaming from the about-to-be-released self-titled album by his collective trio with Jason Stein and Frank Rosalie, Hearts and Minds. To find out more about Paul's different projects, upcoming performances, and that sort of thing, check out paulglorenzo.com. That's G-I-A-L-L-O-R-E-N-Z-O. Two unusual things about the way I edited this episode. The second track I played Paul was a Bud Powell tune from 1954, which he found inferior to Powell's earlier output. I retained the brief chunk of time during which he offers that assessment, but cut the rest, which could be confusing. Towards the end of the interview, I played him a stereo lab tune that inspired him to recount his love for a different song on the same album, so I switched tracks. When editing, I inserted a canned needle scratching sound to cover up the switch, which might avoid confusion or might compound confusion, just as it might either amuse you or irritate you with its skeomorphic irreverence. It's your life. You can find the Now Is podcast in the iTunes store. Perhaps you already have. You can also stream it at nowis.org, N-O-W hyphen I-S dot O-R-G, where you'll find information about all the tracks that I played for Paul. Feel free to also like the Now Is podcast on Facebook. Okay, Paul G. Lorenzo. Cecil? Yep. between playing in and playing out. Yes. You named a band after it. Yes. Here's the consummate out pianist playing 
still fairly in. Yeah. What do you hear? It's it's funny how I didn't notice it was Cecil until like a little bit. What made you notice it? Well, then he started kind of doing his uh, like I think of it as like running in place kind of Whoa. way of uh, navigating with forms where he's like continually being active and harmonically ambiguous but harmonic at the same time and, mm -hmm. and like being in the key but not not changing although right now he kind of is definitely not changing what uh, not not playing changes okay yeah like not changing harmonically it's kind of like skating harmonically over the form well running in place yeah doing something like that yeah. Can you identify a specific thing? You want, I could go back and you could... Yeah, kind of, if like the, the form was like a conveyor belt, he's kind of just like skipping on it. <laughs> That's nice. Check this out. Yeah, and he's, he's like referring to changes, but he's not playing the changes. Right. He's re referring to the fact that changes are there. Yeah. From the beginning, the first, the very first thing he did sounded like he was gonna play the changes. Right, right. Although ironically, that's when you thought it was somebody later than him. Yeah, or, yeah, somebody more like uh, quote unquote jazzy, I guess. But yeah, I love, this is like late 50s, early yeah. 60s. 59. Yeah, this is stuff I love. I'd really, really interested to hear what it would sound like if we removed all the other sound and had just him. I don't even think yeah. that's possible. Because <laughs> they're probably yeah. all like in the same room. Yeah, yeah. But if we did like a, you know, like a David Lemieux kind of like a. David Lemieux kind of like a. David Lemieux kind of like I mean, do you think that other later Cecil actually is referring to changes that we just never got to hear? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, like, like solo things he's doing? Yeah. Definitely. When you hear that stuff, can you pick, do you picture the changes? No, and when I say changes, I kind of just mean like form a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And like a pulse and like there being like four bar phrases and eight bar phrases and then like, oh, we're, we're back to the top. Like that feeling of cyclical, like this is going somewhere and now it's going away and now it's back and starting over again. Like, that, that's kind of what I think is interesting is that that's, he's, or the band is doing that, that's occurring, and that he's just kind of like skating around it and in and out of it and using it to automatically just create and release tension right. throughout the course of it. And as a player myself, I like that approach. I, I feel myself drawn to that. Yeah, you're hearing two different sets of possible ideas yeah. at the same time. Rhythmic ideas, certainly. Yeah, maybe that's just like a, a musical ADD of sorts. Um, but <laughs> is that what you think it is for you? Possibly. Like, I, I think anybody who would who 
would listen to this and be like, what, what's going on? This is ridiculous. This yeah. is all over the place. He's not playing with them. Like, yeah. I could sort of understand where they're coming from. And I, I took my little brother to a, a jazz show um, that Marshall Allen and Paul Nelson love. Um, and uh, and Frody Gerstad, actually, who we were just listening to before this. Um, and he was like, he said to me after, he was like, I knew jazz guys soloed, but I didn't know they were going to all solo at the same time. <laughs> Dixieland, right? Right, well, right, yeah, yeah, Dixieland, yeah, of course. Uh, but it's it's a thing, I mean, it's like what you're saying, like when everyone's skating together, yeah. it makes something much more unpredictable. Yeah, and it's kind of like that the... In the case of like playing over a quote-unquote tune or with the form or with the uh, time, it's like that 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 time and that form is like the invisible thread that doesn't need to be shown a light on, and but it, it can be heard indirectly, kind of like kind of like dark matter that exerts gravity, but you can't see it, right? So you know that it's there based on its. Um, how it causes nearby bodies to move or light to, to bend. And then that way it kind of illuminates itself. It's funny that you mentioned the word strategy. Yeah. That, that totally is a strategy because it's, on one hand you're interacting rhythmically and kind of playing background and trying to like blend with the rhythm section. On the other hand, by playing major and minor seconds with your, as like interval, you're kind of counting and you're also remaining harmonically like ambiguous um, because especially if you're doing like a two note chord and Monk does that a lot and it, it's like e either it's a major second or it's a minor second and those those two choices can work with any any har harmony like any key and you know, if, if it's like the major second didn't work, then the minor second would have. Right. And even then, it's not really... And then the other one could be an accidental or something. Yeah, or a passing chord, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, and I, that's something that I took me a long time, and I'm still not great at it, but as a strategy, like, especially improvising with people um, in a context where it's like, oh, you're the rhythm instrument, like, you know, that that's too, too much... Uh, too much harmony, too many, too many notes. Like, you know, you kind of have to like not. Basically, instead of playing like a three-note chord or a four-note chord or like six notes at the same time, like just like try and play two notes at once, or like three at the most, or one. Right. You know, like limiting myself to like much simpler, like, and they're not even chords. They're just like voices at that point, and thinking of them as voices and not just like. A four-note chord, right? It just right, comes right. automatically, right. you know, because maybe two of those notes are great, but do the other two really need to be there? Yeah, and that—that's like a serious challenge. Not to be negative, but like, or critical of Bud Powell, but like, it, especially in his later years, like, you can just hear that the technique is not there anymore. Yeah, like. And I say that with such humility, right? But like, he, his stuff could be, could have been, have been in periods like early periods, like just amazingly fluid and fast and just like perfect, you know. Mm -hmm. And then you hear him in like the later stuff, and it's just like you can tell he's struggling or he's, his chops aren't there, you know. Or and I mean, Jesus, that guy had 
a very hard is it, life. Is this is this somebody's chops not being there? I mean, I'm being very. This is, he's critical. He's playing really nasty. He, no, he really is. But it's just like this one thing that he did in the beginning that it's like, okay, yeah, maybe maybe it's like an impossible ideal I have that's like only accurate in like a certain part of his career. But like, yeah, you can just tell. It's not like it sounds bad or like I would not love to play like that. But just like the, a little bit of like flub, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's just like, and you know, it's all you wouldn't notice that with almost any piano player. You would hear this, like, oh, that guy's great. But it's like, oh, it's Bud Powell. Like, you know what he's capable of. You know what he's right. done. And it's right, just like, right. I, I can't help hearing like that. Yeah, that's interesting. Next room. Yeah, it's Max Roach. <laughs> I was the piano player, Max Roach. Is this Herbie Nichols? Yeah. Nice. You think of him as like the other Bud Powell? Um, no, the other Monk. Oh, okay. I mean, not. Yeah. No, no, no. That makes a lot more sense. This is great. I don't think I've heard this. Really? Or at least it doesn't sound familiar. So how did you identify it as Herbie Nichols? Uh, or is it just the identity? You identified Max. Yeah. No. I, no. That wasn't what did it. Um, kind of like that left hand chord that rings out, and then the slow, like medium swing. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like those pauses in the phrasing. Yeah, like that monkish quality, but it's clearly not monk, you know. Why is it clearly not monk? Oh, because those lines are too, like, straight in a way. Like, or too, like, um, I won't say normal, but like, yeah, they're just, they're like eighth note lines that kind of start and end and in, like, regular parts of the, the measure. And, right. <laughs> and it's a little bluesier, definitely. That's another like concept, not concept, but element of like what you might say is like my get it to go out mm -hmm. uh, philosophy of like right. having certain elements of the music just feel good and like be really I hate to use the word accessible, but just like something that's grooving or you know just like sounds good, un yeah. undeniably sounds. Do you mean when you say feel good, you mean feel good to you or feel good oh. to the listener? Oh. But one doesn't always include the other, but right. in this case, it's kind of like, I like to yeah. think of it as something almost objective. Yeah. You know, as close to objective as possible. Uh, objectively good. Yeah. Obje objectively, like, feeling good. Like, if, if, if anyone who would in a room listening to this is going to feel good, or mm. it's going to sound good to them. Well, you know, universally good. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> completely uh, biased. Does that make you feel like a bit of a positivist? <laughs> um... Logical positivist. Uh, it's we don't have to go down. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I get, it. I get it. Yeah, yeah it's, this is like something that like you'd put on for people in any context. Yeah, right even now. people that don't like jazz yeah. or only people that like and people who like, like straight. Yeah, it's just like yeah, it's just like yeah, it's just like yeah. It's it strikes just like, me that yeah. seeing you play sometimes that you're like letting the physicality of your hand partially dictate certain like sonic yeah. uh, harmonic choices and even rhythmic choices and stuff. 
Um, do you think of yourself as doing that, or is that just the way that it looks when I'm like looking at your hands? No, I think I think I I think that's part of it. I think of it as a, a physical gesture and also like um, almost like weaponizing your hands in a way because and actually I think a lot of like you mentioned Monk does that and I, I kind of came to this sort of realization that I think a lot of what shaped his early style and like is like a, again a strategy for, for basically playing shitty piano that's not loud uh -huh. and you're you know you you have to that's the only way that it can cut through is if you bash it yeah yeah, you know, yeah. or like you stab it basically yeah. and maybe that's even a reason for skating in different rhythmic ways on top or around it because then you yeah can you're hurt poking through yeah. you're jabbing through yeah like a lot of that that the Cecil stuff that you played it's like those are cutting through and you by creating uh, you can't do that continuously it's right. not an organ right you now so you have to repeat it and yeah then, it's a percussion instrument. yeah exactly um, if you listen to those early Charlie Parker recordings where they're they're quite clearly playing swing music um, and he's like just bebopping all over it but it's like really medium tempo and there's like four in the floor and I think Charlie Christian's on a lot of that stuff like you probably you probably know those recordings but Monk is on a lot of those and you can just hear he's just banging just so he can be heard cool and like so you can hear him and he can do a solo otherwise it's like you're, you're screwed <laughs> um, I was thinking that watching Mark play the other oh day. totally Maybe that's what he does oh yeah. totally no and he's gotten so good at that like he does that so well He's killer. Like Mark Reardon for the benefit yeah. of the listening audience. Yeah. same time yeah that's kind of that's kind of nice harmonically at least I mean the, the the sort of sentimentality I feel like is just kind of bordering a little bit on like 
kind of like a snoozy. The sentimentality as, oh. as depicted by the, the harmonic structure. Or just, just what I hear it to be. I, I hear it as a, a sentimental huh. sort of yeah, yeah. A song right now. Um, which, I, it's like on the border for what I consider to be a little bit almost like yeah, no, that's super, saccharine. Or that's like, super interesting to me. I mean, I hear like the fact that they're sort of floating in and out of each other, uh, around each other in this particular way makes those like pretty chords just become this kind of like, I don't know, harmonic series that they're occupying and it doesn't feel like, it doesn't remind me of any emotion. It's like, seems like beautifully neutral in this like, yeah, way that appeals to me. But I guess That's yeah, great. I can picture now that you say it, I can picture a singer or something. Yeah, I'm definitely associating it with like other things that are similar that might be more overtly Precious or something right. right. Like what? Um, yeah, like a, a ballad with like female vocals. You know, at like a jazz festival. Yeah. That, yeah. That's kind of like, you know, where I, I, I could, I'm picturing like. <laughs> uh, people like. Sitting in on lawn chairs with sunglasses, fanning themselves. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. like, yeah. Sounds like someone playing an Ewe. Mm. Like the electronic saxophone. Yeah. I wouldn't expect you to guess it. Yeah, I have no idea. Uh, yeah, I'm more interested in your reactions. Paul Blay, Annette Peacock, and that's actually also on on the drums, on Bennett, on the drums. Wow. In uh, 71. I should know this. I like this a lot. Um, like my natural tendency in uh, in most improvising contexts with the synthesizer is to not not play harmonically and not to not just not go there um, I think part of it is because the instrument I have the, the tuning on it is very variable like it, it changes throughout the the course of the of, over time like the tuning just changes um, so it's kind of tricky to like to basically be in tune when you're playing with other um, like pitch instruments which okay. I usually am so sort of like the physicality of the hand it's dictated the choices you're making are in part dictated by the constraints of the instrument. Oh yeah, definitely. But just in ter terms of the choice to whether to play like harmonically or not, mm -hmm. and it's and I don't. It's easy to not play harmonically on the synthesizer, and it's just it's more natural for me because mm -hmm. it's kind of like the it, it's kind of always been the uh, the alternative to the piano. Like right. that was kind of like how. I approach the instrument like initially. Right. Oh, like the anti-piano kind of. Right, oh, okay. Well, that's different than alternative. Yeah. Because I mean, like a sax player might have like a clarinet or a flute as an alternative. But yeah, not yeah, is... not an alternative as in like a substitute, but just like the, the opposite possibility. Right. So, so when I hear, when I hear keyboardists playing synthesizers keyboardistically, yeah, it's just it's a, it's a, it's very unfamiliar to me. But at the right. same time, 
I think I appreciate it more than it sounds better as a listener than it does. Sure. For me as a performer. Sure. At some level, this is well, certainly Paul Blay like coming out of you know um, out like post pop yeah. and stuff into like very free music, and then playing like you know synthesizers and doing like really like super 1971 sort of druggy yeah. improv like the cover of this he has this massive beard and like shaggy hair and stuff you know yeah. um but then they're also trying to like also maybe as a hippie influence trying to include like a song yeah like vocals and um the the, the my interest in uh incorporating i wouldn't say it in a pop context but incorporating like more yeah out sounds or um, abstract or non-harmonic sounds in a um, pop context would some, something I was more interested in the past but I still am, am interested in it but it's been a while but like kind of um, like beat music or, or instrumental hip-hop or even like dance music having um, sort of like a repetitive or like a time-based sort of pulse and then having like samples that are maybe maybe like loops that are kind of placed in and they have they function as a loop but they're they might be like a total out um, sample or like a reversed or distorted cut up sort of sample but that are kind of fitting in time and I think there's actually a lot of uh, room for that sort of exploration in like beat music and, and hip-hop and a lot of people are doing it for sure yeah, and yeah. that's something that like eventually I'd like to explore that, explore that, explore that, explore that. Pretty much when you're making dance music or beat music, you can pretty much like you can make a drum kit or a drum sound using any sort of timbres or tones, and if you if you set up like the, the pads to to have these different samples and you and you play it like a drum beat and it has that repetitive quality, it's gonna sound like drums, but it's yeah. gonna be, Super. instead of a snare and bass and like a yeah, yeah, hi-hat, yeah. it can be like almost any it kind of similar sound. And I think that's something that's, a lot of interesting things can come from that and do come from that. I'm, right. I'm not as familiar with um, a lot of what I think is probably going on right now. Yeah. But that, that's Me like, if I, if I could like clone myself, I would, I would I would like spend all your time. Yeah, I would like pursue that pretty actively, actually. Yeah. Just because I think that's something that could, can and does like connect with, um, what's popular and, and like youth culture and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which would be nice. And also, I think people who listen to a lot of more like abstract electronic or dance music or would be open to that sort of avant-gardeism in that context. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, no, I, I, and also you could make music that would actually make people dance. Like, it, it would be clear what to do in some capacity, not precisely, yeah. but like something to do with your body. One of the things about watching you and, and your colleagues play music is it's like, just sit silently, yeah. like as still as possible for, yeah. you know, 45 minutes or an hour or something. Um, yeah. And it would be, you know, you would create a certain type of audience satisfaction by giving them something to dance to. Yeah, I think dance music could be completely blown up with, you know, with the, with introducing those elements. And like I said, like, I, I've never really gotten very far in terms of the production end of things. Like I taught myself how to do engineering and yeah. 
basic mixing and editing like yeah. a while ago, but I'm just like, I don't have the time or the attention to really like explore it. And it's still like right. on my like to-do list, I guess. Right. So, so to speak. But yeah, I think that's, there's a lot of potential in that. Yeah, and yeah. Because if, if, if people are, if you're dancing and people are dancing, it's like, again, it's kind of like the get in and go out sort of mm -hmm. idea. Like while, while there's that thing happening, other things on top of that could like really stretch and really totally. be completely creative. And yeah. One of the things that prevents me from making more like studio based works is like, how would you recreate that live? Cause it, and maybe I need to like get over that, but it almost seems like if you can't do it live, like then it doesn't really, the project doesn't really have a life. Mm. If you can't like bring it on the road, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's probably partly the limited conditions of the contemporary musician, to yeah. some extent. Like, you're not going to sell like a hundred thousand copies of that record, you know. So it's like you might, you want to be like working too. You want to be like, oh, oh yeah, you know? totally. And yeah, and if it's really um, intensive in terms of production, you need concerts that pay and have like a sound guy, and mm -hmm. that, that that's a challenge. Like I think for for any integrative approach to where it's more than just like you're playing synthesizer but there's actual like looping and and when it's more than just like instrumentalists playing together in a live context so did people successfully recreate this sort of thing live in 1972 with this i think so yeah i never i never heard this live but i imagine that Probably. Oh, so this isn't live. This is. A studio. I don't think it is. Okay. I mean, it's a it's a studio album, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I've never heard live live performances of this. So I obviously you obviously know what it is. Yeah. Harry Hancock. Yeah. yeah. This is great. This is a great record. Yeah. Um, the name of it is escaping me right now, but I know the album cover. Yeah. Yeah. Sexton. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, speaking of tortoise, like I feel like the beginning of this track specifically has influenced him a lot and I've, oh, I've yeah. heard them do like things that sound a lot like this. Yeah, totally. And I'll, also actually, I take that back, um, I'm actually thinking more of Isotope mm. 217, even though there's a lot of overlap there in the, in the early in the, so. Without doubt, in the personality, yeah. But I think Isotope might have actually even done a version of this. I mean, just like drum and bass, live drums and bass, like they're grooving but they're not like, they're still like loose and and like the, the electronics totally fit in. They're, they're pulsing, but they're also, it's like just interesting and textural. Yeah, they're like bubbling over. Yeah, it's, like, it's, yeah. Like, it's got that frothy, pulsy like. Yeah, and like that, that when he drops that like, yeah, that's just kind of like, it kind of like brings everything to the surface for a little bit and then it's totally. just like, gliding along and then you kind of submerge a little bit for a little excursion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You back up. Is there any relationship between the frothy synth stuff and the skating that Cecil was doing? Um, they don't, I don't mean a relationship no. of being the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Some relationship. A, a functional relationship. Yeah, definitely. Because he's, there's, there's um, tonality to it and there's, um, I don't know, you, you couldn't really call it a melody, but I mean, but it, it, it has melodic aspects. Um, and now, now we have Herbie doing this Herbie thing. Yeah, well, tell me about his Herbie, <laughs> tell me about his Herbie thing. Uh, he's just like, 
group grooving right, right along, you know. Um, he's speaking. When I say like, oh, that's how we're doing this thing, like that's kind of like the more like jazz funk stuff. Mm -hmm. That's like, I think more of his idiom. Yeah, sure. As like an in, in jazz improviser, sure. electric piano jazz improviser, right. which I think is great. And yeah. It's like funky. And I understand you to have a fairly strong jazz funk background. <laughs> Is that true? Have I been lied to? Uh, you have not been lied to. Um, I do. I've never really been in too many jazz funk projects, but like I think one of the bridges from like um, straight ahead, quote unquote, jazz or classic jazz, let's say, um, to more experimental jazz. One of the early bridges for me was like like funky jazz, you know, yeah. and maybe like kind of like this space. What are you thinking of specifically? Um, like the early 70s, um, Herbie stuff with Moan Vichy, like the mm -hmm. Warner Brothers recordings. Yeah. The Fat Albert stuff where it's like, it's not funk. Yeah. You know, because they're actually, well, I, I don't want to Yeah, is this, well, is this funk? Is, I mean, you know. It's funky, you know. It's in time, you know. Yeah. This is more of like an on the corner kind of, even though this, was this, this is before the on the corner, right? Uh, this is, I believe this is 72, unless I oh, well, wrote my metadata wrong. Yeah. yeah, this is like, this is kind of in the direction of funk at this point at least, with like the staying on the one chord, or on, on the single chord. Um, like that repetition. Yeah, this is 72, yeah. This is super groundbreaking. Yeah, and good. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely my favorite of like of his more um, experimental facing yeah. recordings. So many things like this just sound so dated and like yeah. cliched at this point. Yeah, but I, not not this to me at least. Why not? Um, because it it's different enough. Like the things that came after this, I feel like in a lot of ways borrowed from the idea. But like I think these the sounds he's using, they're not like canned sounds. Yeah, they're like actual like programmed. Yeah, he's dialing like, these in. And yeah, and it's it's just not like a preset from a Yamaha DX7. You know, it's more of like before those things existed. Like, right. This is what those things are trying to do. Yeah, and that pulsing, the swirling. You know, the that groove dance element, even though this is not dance music at all. Yeah. At this point. At this I don't think, yeah, I mean, I would be, this would be what we'd be playing in the chill out room. Yeah. <laughs> nice. This is like probably one of my favorite bands, yeah. I'd have to say. Yeah. In terms of like bands. And Right. Tell me why. Um, really great songs that are like not just have a bridge because it's time to have a bridge, but like yeah. you know, oh here's a change, and it's not like what was happening before was getting boring, but it's just like, um, and there's that beautiful vocals, um, and just like complex yet relaxed and natural flowing. Um, I mean, listen to that, that's, those keyboards, like that synth, it's just like, it's so, 
interesting and original, like, but it, it, set, it fits, you know, it's not like trying to be odd, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I mean, this is like, in my mind, the best that pop music can be. Yeah, you know, nice. and even if it was instrumental, I would, I would feel that way. But it probably wouldn't be as popular. Yeah. Um, oh, the singers are so great. In yeah. addition to having like, just like divinely beautiful voices, they're yeah. real musicians. Yeah. With it, they yeah. like their phrasing. Oh yeah, they couldn't do this without yeah. musicians. Yeah. Mary Hansen and Leticia Sadier, I think, right? Other names. I know Mary Hansen. Yeah. I don't know the other names. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, um, you know, there's actually, um, I think it's on, I forget the name of the record, I think it's like Cuts and Notes and Scratches or something. Is that the I don't know, that, and there's the like beeps and boops and words <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the first track on this, on that record, it's got a lot of Rob or cornet, but it's like totally cut up mm. and it, it just, it's so captivating and it, yeah. it's like so experimental and like, like extended and just all the things about like avant-garde music that, that I like. But it it's in this like context that's just completely grooving and, and smooth and, and natural and it just fits so well. I don't know. Yeah. This is killer. Oh, it's yeah. like it's like you know, drums and bass, but then, yeah. oh, it's trumpet. But it's not like, yeah, that, that synthesizer, that's just so awesome. And like, this could be done live, you yeah. know, where someone's live sampling the cornet and, yeah. and then like rocking it. And then there's that. Yeah, just like that groove, like, what is that? It's like, Well, the drummer, who I, I actually don't know, I think I might, I would guess it's John McIntyre. I think so, this one at least. Yeah, it certainly sounds like McIntyre. But because this was a late addition to the playlist, thanks Issa, um, I didn't get around to looking up who's playing on this track. Or well, Robin's are playing cornet. For sure. Um, but uh, the, the drummer's playing, what I was going to say is McIntyre is playing like a, um, a pretty like, you know, in the pocket, kind yeah. of like Latin groove. Yeah, kind of right. Yeah, Afro something. Yeah, Af <laughs> Fred was 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 like, oh yeah, French Afro pop something like that. It's like okay. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's just so many elements of this track that I yeah like because it's it's totally like mixing abstract and weirdo shit with like right just pretty pretty groovy sounds. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and like, where, who would have thought that melody would have came in? Like, yeah. where did that come from? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the first part, do, 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 yeah. do, do, do. Yeah. yeah. Not to go all left field here, but it's like, I think they do a really good job of having these asymmetrical things that sound, once they repeat, then it sounds right. Yeah. It's, that it's, it's on a loop. It's, 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 then it defines the pulse. And that's like, kind of like the, um, the more dumb and like asymmetrical um, rug yeah. design, sort of, where you can, it sounds repetitive, but if you Which listen, listener, nothing, 
which listener we were talking about during our break. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it has this repetitive quality, so there's like a continuity, but if you listen to it, nothing is ever repeating itself. Right. She's also playing what she was playing. No, I'll go back to the part. Yeah. She's playing like very inside in terms of like the, the harmony. Mm -hmm. Yeah, basically playing it in one key. There's a change. That's a, it's a really nice song. Definitely sounds like something that I would do. Okay. So what 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 would be what makes what what do you I mean I had just that general observation. How do you yeah. specifically? Well there's like that? she's kind of moving like in like a pentatonic sort of way. Um, which kind of has like this harp harp-like quality to it. Um, I kinda of hear like Alice Coltrane in there. Um, so it's it's like very 
inside, but her phrases are are kind of very jagged, which is, is cool and something that I would probably do instead of like. I think that's also a function of like the actual tune itself. Sure. And is that mad on? Yeah, I turned it back down. Yeah. Nate Lilly, trumpet. Okay. And the understated rhythm section is uh, Jason Nishemian and Thomas Cordillera. I was going to guess... Come on. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that does sound like a Jemian now. I thought I'd think of it. I like how they went from that solo section to that melody and like that transition. Yeah, it was a nice blend. Now they're somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, those are hard to do to make them like the right timing. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious if you have thoughts about Chicago versus New York. You know. Yeah. Is um, there something that makes this sound like a New York record, even though some of these people live yeah, in Chicago? Yeah. Matt and Jason. Um, it. I think the 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 groove element, like that vamp element, is more of a New York thing than a Chicago thing. Even though that's something that I would do, but I feel like that's like. Well, you're also the from New York. York. Part of me. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, it's they're not, you know, a f at least it's not as atonal as something you might hear in Chicago. You know, I feel like in New York they're not necessarily they're, they're I don't want to use the word afraid, but they're it's just more um, comfortable. It seems like to. To be tonal in okay. New York and still be like doing original creative things that are, aren't necessarily like modern jazz. Like, this, right. you know, you wouldn't call this modern jazz. You would, oh, maybe, I mean, it depends on your definition of modern jazz. Yeah. But this, this isn't really like, like contemporary jazz in, in a lot of. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. This, this isn't going to be playing at like. You know, Birdland on Friday. Yeah, know, they're like summer jazz series or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe at like six p.m. Maybe at six p.m. <laughs> um, so, why do you think there's that difference in New York? Insofar as there is, a difference. I, don't, I don't know, but I, I feel like the, the mainstream is stronger in New York, and it has a deeper connection to like quote unquote classic jazz, where. Mm -hmm. Where you know where the mainstream mainstream jazz was sort of experimental jazz at some point. I mean, there's always been like a a difference, like a, a split, but split, but split, but split. But I feel like contemporary jazz in Chicago is either like much more atonal, much more quote unquote free, or the other end is it's much more like. It, it, it's hard to describe. Uh, is it hard to describe, or are you just trying to be polite? No, no. <laughs> well, well, I'm I'm trying it's, to... more, it's more be too broad. Story. Yeah, it's it's more binary whether you're you're a, like an inside or outside player. Is that what you're saying? In New York, yeah, or in Chicago? Chicago. Is that what you're I think in Chicago it's more yeah, binary. That's what you're saying. Yeah, I think recently that's been changing a bit, and I think part of it is that there's more musicians in New York mm -hmm. and. Um, in a lot of ways, like I think they're—I don't want to say 
um, like better or worse, but maybe more experienced. They have more um, diverse jazz contexts where there is more of a spectrum, I think, between between uh, yeah, popular yeah. jazz and creative jazz. Let's right. Say, but. <laughs> right. This is the only one where I was kind of looking forward to fooling you. I'm <laughs> yeah, moving away from that with this. I'm not trying to fool people, but this is one that really starts. It's a recent Chicago? Uh, 96. Oh, okay. And the piano player Chicago player? Yeah. Is this, um... It's the first person you should be thinking of. Yeah. Um... No, no. <laughs> no, no, the first person you see, the piano player you see the most. Oh, Jim Baker. Yeah, this is Jim Baker. Yeah. And Mike is ranked. Really? Yeah. The only time I've personally ever heard the two of them together play something that resembles a pop song at the beginning, sort of. At least an idiom. Is this from a, a blue record? Yeah, it's blue, yeah. On the Dark Double, the Dark Oh yeah, this yeah. is a great record. I don't know why. Well, you probably haven't listened to it. Anymore, yeah, actually. so this is a great album. So what's great about it? Well, about, about the album or this track? Well, ideally about this track. Yeah. I mean, this, I think this is great also. This probably would not be my favorite track on the record. But um, I think it's great because Jim Baker is such a badass. And he's totally like rocking like contemporary piano jazz idiom. Sort of. <laughs> yeah, but he's he's also like flipping it on his head and like and he totally sounds different yeah. than right now than what he's doing here. Like it's, I really wouldn't necessarily recognize him, which yeah. is kind of surprising. Yeah. And now I can recognize Michael, but in the beginning, um, Yeah, I just like how... What gave away Michael just then? Oh, when he did like that Tom roll. Okay. Um, Do you want to hear it again? From the beginning? Yeah. No, no, just from no. the Tom roll. That, that Tom roll. Okay. That, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I like how it, it totally sounded like jazz yeah <laughs> like in, in, the, in the beginning and, and, and even like that could have been well it's definitely not like before 1980 I don't think I would guess much more contemporary Jim yeah it, it's definitely contemporary sounding um, I'm saying it sounds like what he does now more yeah I don't think so. No, back now, okay. I don't know. That one, that one part, I guess, I meant more. Yeah, okay, so tell me, this is from 96, yeah. which is when you were in college, right? Are you? The, uh, the golden age of free jazz. Sure, <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the golden ages. Well, I'm asking, so what was, um, how did you encounter, say, these people, how did you encounter, maybe more importantly, music like this, and how did it sound to you yeah. as you were um, developing as a listener and a player? Yeah, um, I think, well, I... I started 
encountering free jazz and progressive music like, a couple years later, maybe like 97, 98. Um, Empty Bottle was a big venue. Um, they had stuff like every Tuesday and Wednesday. Mostly, actually, through WNUR, where I was going to school, and that radio station was doing, playing a lot of this stuff. Um, and it was just refreshing, because I had never heard anything like it at the yeah, time. Yeah. And there was this whole, like, scene of musicians and concerts. It was just a lot of great stuff to see live. Yeah. And that was a great introduction. And what about these two players? Did you encounter them? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and I mean, I guess most of, I'm curious about your thought about encountering either of them, but obviously the first thing I think of is to ask you about Jim Baker, because... Yeah, no, he was someone that, I it took me a while to even like hear what he was doing. I remember like thinking to myself, like I couldn't even imitate him if I wanted to. Like, just, I, it was a kind of thing where like, after he was would play something, I, I, I couldn't even like really, play it back in my head. Yeah. You know, it's like he does such a good job of not only not repeating himself, but just so many like ideas that just kind of keep coming out of nowhere and building on themselves. Yeah. It's just like he has so much to say. It just just keeps coming, like his ideas in there. And, And obviously like in this track shows that he's so well versed in like the history of, of, of jazz and like right. he can play so jazzy yeah. if he if he wants to. And I think definitely like that the idea of like kind of mastering like the jazz idiom in order to be able to be like outside of that was sort of big in my thinking at that time and I've yeah. definitely moved away from that in a lot of ways. Right. Okay. Do you think you still hear Jim doing that when you see him playing, you hear that he's master of the jazz idiom, or you're um, you moving in a direction. Yeah, no, I'm moving in a different direction than him, I guess. No, I mean like for myself, the idea that I need to, in order to, to really successfully improvise or play like experimental jazz, I need to be like a jazz, like a traditional jazz master. You know, that that was like a goal yeah. of mine for a while, and I, I'm I'm just I take less stock in that idea. Not to say that I don't value traditional jazz or. Yeah, I'm interested in it, but I don't think you, one requires the other. Right. So how does that relate to what you're doing uh, in Hearts and Minds, doing kind of like a funk, uh, some like funk left hand stuff, like, or, I mean, maybe that's not right, but like walking on your left hand, like really like mm-hmm. whole, turning something into kind of a pop song, like specifically the song um, streaming that as uh-huh. I told you, I can't get out of my damn head. <laughs> It's just like super catchy and like mm-hmm. comes off almost as like pop music, uh, but you're you know you're also doing out you know there's weird solo stuff that happens in that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, how do you relate that to what the two of them are doing there in their relationship to a form versus free improvising? Yeah, I mean they're definitely there's pulse, there's groove. I'm sure that they're improvising that. Um, I think what we're trying to do is, in, in Hearts and Minds specifically, is kind of sort of create mo- mostly concise like songs with, with melodies and with forms and grooves um, that pretty much draw the listener in 
kind of create the vibe. And then within that, we make it our own. And, and, and I don't, I wouldn't say necessarily take it out in, in a lot of senses, but in some senses, definitely. But yeah, just using the, the song structure and yeah, a melody, maybe it's a memorable one that kind of is a through line and then a vehicle to, to make a statement. But I think with, with Hearts and Minds, we're really more trying to go for a sound. Just very little um, dead space is kind of a goal. Just just to like leave, leave an impression of like the, the song or the track as like a, a singular. Totally. That seems like a fundamentally different strategy to free improvising, where it's like just accepting the the limits, mm-hmm. you know, accepting there's going to be space where people aren't quite sure what's happening. Yeah, now. and there's like, yeah, and there's there's transitions and there's explorations that yeah. are contingent. Yeah, and it's funny because I guess that's the reason that I played that of all the Jim Baker things mm-hmm. I could have played you. I should, like he has this solo album, More Questions Than Answers, that's mm-hmm. so incredible. Yeah. And also, like, I, I probably should have picked something from that, but I was just like, oh. it's so, like, to do, to get you on the last one because it's like, you just don't, you know, it wouldn't occur to you that, that Jim and Michael would ever have ever done that. But yeah. um, I, I don't know, it just like, it really calls to the fore, like the limits of this kind of like doing a form that's like immediately recognizable as, as an idiomatic thing mm-hmm. versus free improvising. So, Yeah, I think the, the, at least my experience of making music, it kind of waxes and wanes is between, waxes and wanes between, <laughs> trying to have total improvisation and total like contingency and outness and whatever it is and just like being in that moment and I love love doing that and I still do that um, and then there's kind of like I don't want to use words like commodify and package but trying to place sort of those more heady turbulent chaotic abstract inaccessible atonal things that in and of themselves I love and I value them highly but trying to place them in a, a vehicle. And it's not necessarily that like strategic necessarily, but, but trying to place them in a vehicle that gives the listener a quicker and easier channel to, to get to those higher plane sounds, especially in like a non-live situation. Like I don't think total free improv comes across as well in a recording than it does in a, in a live setting. So maybe that's like a strategy for making it something that can transmit more easily in a, in a more remote setting as opposed to watching it live.
just keep listening to CC Taylor. <laughs> we could do the all CC Taylor program. Like that's, I, it would be fun to do something like that. Yeah, that'll be like like the fifth season, like the fifth anniversary. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. When we bring somebody back and they, we just do all one artist. Or I still want people to pick up, just play songs for me, and I'll just be like, cool, and you just talk about it. That'll be that's maybe that's the that's a good that's a good idea too. Yeah, for the for the fifth season. Okay, okay, let's just plow forward. And then we'll do Celebrity Now Is podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get like a... Well, you guys will all be famous then. That's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> celebrities. <laughs>